Well, good morning. Today is Palm Sunday, and I have to be honest with you, this is not how I thought I'd be celebrating Palm Sunday. Uh, growing up as a kid, I remember uh, Palm Sunday was always the day you'd come to church and all of the kids uh, would be walking down the aisles of the worship center, waving their palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, uh, the, the Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, you know, reenacting that passage from Matthew 21 where the children were celebrating the coming of Christ. And, uh, you know, I mean, as we're coming to you, there's Pastor Joe, Pastor Drew, James, Brent, and, and they're wonderful. I love being with them six feet apart, but it's not the same as being with you. And I'll have to tell you, I sure do miss you all, especially on days like today. But I'm glad that you're here. And thank you for your support. Uh, thank you for your continued giving. Thank you for sharing uh, this live feed uh, with your friends and your family. Just in doing that, we have had folks uh, comment or uh, send us a message from places like the Middle East. We've heard about people in Europe uh, watching this live feed. And it's all because of their connections with you. So thank you for inviting, quote-unquote, people to church uh, to worship uh, during this season. I, I want to uh, let you know that uh, we have a lot of wonderful stuff. You're going to be hearing about this. Uh, I hope that you'll stay engaged, stay committed. Just because we're not meeting in the church building doesn't mean that we're not the church in the world. Like I said, today is Palm Sunday. Uh, today's text comes from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 21. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go get it. Um, we're going to be reading uh, the, the actual Gospel uh, lesson of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And, but I want to spend some time in this part of Matthew. So if you found Matthew chapter 21, uh, it's only 11 verses, so it's not as long as the past couple of weeks. Uh, let's uh, read together. Matthew chapter 21, uh, and beginning in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and He sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before Jesus and that followed Jesus were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when He entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
The text that I read to you today uh, really begins back in chapter 20, the, the chapter just prior to this, in verse 17, when Jesus is beginning His journey to Jerusalem. Back in chapter 19, one more chapter back, He left Galilee, which is at the northern part of the country, and He's made His way to Judea, which is the southern province of the country. But He's, quote, uh, beyond the Jordan. That's what the, the Bible says. Meaning He was on the east side of the Jordan River, or in what is today the country of Jordan. Uh, at chapter 20... Uh, Jesus and His disciples are now leaving that area and they're making their way uh, walking uh, to the west side of, the Jordan, of the, uh, the Jordan River to the city of Jerusalem. So if, if you have your Bibles, flip back to chapter 20 again and look with me at verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside and on the way He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over, the, over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And He will be raised on the third day. The first point that I want to share with you this morning is that the first step in being healed is knowing that you're sick. <laughs> that makes sense, doesn't it? That's probably one of the reasons that what we're dealing with right now with the coronavirus is so insidious. Uh, our immune systems, we're told, just simply don't even recognize that we have a virus until the virus has run amok in our bodies, damaging our lungs, and even worse, perhaps, infecting so many other people before we even know that we have it ourselves. There's a spiritual lesson in here, I think, for you, for me, for the whole church. In verse 29, Jesus is just outside of Jericho, which is on the west side of the Jordan River, as I've already shared with you. It's about 14 miles or so from the city of Jerusalem. And at this point, he's kind of picked up a crowd of people who are walking with him. And there's an interesting part in this whole story of uh, what happens is as beginning in verse 29 as Jesus is is leaving uh, uh, the the area that he'd been in walking around Jericho he sees two blind men sitting on the side of the road. Now these blind men are able to see who Jesus is. For out of their lips they cry, Jesus, Son of David. Now I think that's pretty cool that these blind men are the ones that see who Jesus really is. But there's even something better. If you were to sit down and you were to read all of Matthew in one sitting, and you just made for yourself uh, the goal of of paying attention to every time the phrase Son of David is mentioned, you'll see something really amazing. The first time that we see the phrase Son of David mentioned about Jesus is in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. When, are you ready? Two blind men cry out to Jesus 
and call him the son of David. Now, after that, Jesus is only referred to as the son of David two more times. Uh, one time, a crowd of Jews say, can this be the son of David? Uh, the second time is when a Canaanite woman, a, foreign, a foreigner, uh, somebody who Jews probably wouldn't have much to do with, uh, see Jesus, and she says to him, uh, Son of David, have mercy on me. Come and heal my daughter who's oppressed by an evil spirit. Now, up until this time, the Son of David is not used again. And so what we have here is we sort of have some bookends of two blind men at the beginning of Jesus' ministry announcing who He is, that is, He's the Son of David. And now, just before He gets ready to go into Jerusalem, two blind men again are announcing that Jesus is the Son of David. Now, I, I, blind men identifying who Jesus is at the beginning of His ministry and at the end of His ministry, or at, at, the, at least the week, uh, this is the last week of His life, the last week of His ministry, I don't think that's an accident. I think that's a powerful statement that sometimes it's the blind who are able to see. Or perhaps in our own understanding, it's those who understand their own brokenness, their own sickness, who are able to see from whom they might be healed. Now, this title, Son of David, uh, it, it gets declared again after the two blind men uh, right before Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Uh, in just the next verse, in chapter 20, verse 31, the crowds uh, cry out that Jesus is the Son of David. And then when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, and that's the text that was read to us today, in chapter 21, verse 9, again, the crowds declare Jesus to be the Son of David. A third time, uh, when the children are seeing Jesus cleanse the temple uh, in uh, chapter 21, verse 15, they cry out that Jesus is the Son of David. And then the final time where this phrase is used in the Gospel of Matthew is when Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and He asks them this question. Who is the Messiah? And they answer Him, the Messiah is the Son of David. Now I think this is Matthew's way of saying, duh, do we see the connection here? Do we see the revelation of who Jesus Christ is? Now, just hang with me just a little bit here, because I want you to see even more of the power of this phrase. In uh, chapter 22, verse 44, as Jesus is having this conversation, you can flip over to there, chapter 22, uh, verse 44. Jesus then quotes uh, this psalm. It's from Psalm chapter 110 and verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus describes this as David, the writer of the psalm, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declaring that his own son, that is David's son, that is, is the, uh, the descendant of who he is, as this Lord. David calls his son Lord. That, that, that should cause us 
to pause for just a moment. What father calls their son Lord? Now, just hang with me just a few more moments. Put your finger there and hold it there in Matthew. And then I want you to flip over to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. Now, I think this is real important. Now, while you're looking that up, and listen, this is a live feed, so you don't have to worry about your neighbors looking to see if you know where Hebrews is. You just go ahead, look in your table of contents, because it's more important. I want you to be able to read this along with me. But, so keep looking for it. But as you're looking, I want you to, to, to know this. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, is written to Jews to discuss how Jesus is the Messiah promised through the Jewish Scriptures. The book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it necessarily, but the book of Hebrews, one of the letters in your New Testament, is also written to a predominantly Jewish audience. And so uh, by now you should have found uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Now, what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he's declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. Not just an earthly son of David. Not just a descendant of a human king who was born, lived, and died. But that this individual, this Messiah that's promised is the Son of God. And since God Himself refers to the Messiah as God, so you have God referring to the Messiah as God, we Christians would say, this is God the Father acknowledging the divinity of God the Son. The Messiah is identified here as the Son of of God and God the Son. Now, what, is, what does all this mean? Why is this important? Well, Palm Sunday, that's what we're celebrating today. There's a procession that is about to occur. And this procession is the prophetic realization of the coming of the Messiah. Now, here I think is the last uh, piece to this puzzle. The word Messiah literally means anointed one. Could it be that this Jesus is the Messiah? The promised Messiah. Could it be that this is the Son of God and God the Son? Could this be, this great procession, God coming to His own people? I don't know about you, but with all of that information coming from the fullness of the Scriptures from the New Testament, my interest has been piqued just a little bit. Has the King of the universe come to Jerusalem? The One who was foretold. Now here's what's so frightening about this to me. <laughs> what's frightening is that it was two blind men Men who knew they were blind. People who knew they were sick. People who knew they were broken. That recognized who Jesus was. The crowds? 
Not so much. You'll remember, even they, when they were asked, who is this? They didn't respond, the Son of God or God the Son. They said, the prophet, Jesus. They didn't, still in this moment, get who it was that was coming into Jerusalem. You and I might ask the same question in our own life. Do we get who Jesus is and why this Jesus is so important in our life? Brothers and sisters, we haven't even gotten to Jerusalem yet. And the crowd hasn't even lined the streets yet. And suddenly, I'm starting to shake a little bit, trying to think about what the significance is of this Jesus coming in this grand procession on this Palm Sunday. Now look again at, back at chapter 21 and verse 2 as we get into the actual text uh, that we're going to be focusing on now. Jesus tells His disciples to go into the village and get a donkey. Now this is my second point that I want to share with you. Sometimes Christ comes into our lives in ways that we would never expect. Now, I, I know, I completely understand. Our culture doesn't do very well with donkeys. I mean, they're stubborn. They may be small and sturdy, I suppose, but they are definitely not the kind of animal that we want bringing our victorious king into our city. Well, for centuries, we know this. Conquering kings have always ridden into the cities that they have conquered on a great steed. On a stallion. Maybe a, a stallion clothed with, with beautiful garments and gold and, and laden with, with, with the armor around its head and its breasts. A donkey? <clears throat> well, the Bible says that Jesus coming in on this donkey was a sign of His humility and was a sign of Him being the Prince of Peace. Now, now to really understand this, we've, we've got to go back a little bit into some of the history of the ancient world and the ancient culture. Interestingly, donkeys were indeed the beasts of burden that kings would occasionally ride on. This wasn't something that was strange to them. Now, the way they looked at this is, is that depending on how the king came depended on the motivation of the king. So if the king came into your city riding on a stallion, which would happen, that meant he was coming to show his strength through war. However, if the king was coming under the banner of peace, the king would always ride a donkey. You see, just because the king is on a donkey did not diminish the role, rights, or privileges of the monarch. But it answered the question, does this person come in peace or does this person come for war? Now, think back to your, your Hebrew Scriptures, your Old Testament. The King David, he's dealing with a civil war that's erupted in his family and and uh, his sons are fighting among themselves as to who would be the one who would succeed him as king. And so what David does is David takes his choice to be his successor, Solomon, 
and has Solomon ride around the city of Jerusalem on a, you guessed it, a donkey. If you don't believe me, it's in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 38-40. through 40. Now, David's other sons, Absalom and Adonijah, who were sons who were trying to get the throne from their dad, they were promoting themselves by uh, processing on things like horses and chariots with, with grand processions to show their, their military might. But you know the end of the story, don't you? You know who actually got the throne? Solomon, the one who rode on the donkey. As a matter of fact, this text in Matthew about the procession, uh, Palm Sunday procession, even quotes the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9, uh, it, it, where Zechariah tells the people, this is how you will know that Messiah is coming. When He comes to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus is the One. He fully fulfills the royal title of the Son of David. We walked you through the Scriptures. I hope you took notes. If not, you can watch this again and look up the Scriptures again. He fully fulfills the Messianic title of the Anointed One. The writer of Hebrews declares that. He fully fulfills the divine title of Son of God and God the Son. This Jesus who is the full revelation of God. Or if you'd prefer, we can use the Apostle Paul's words in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This Jesus is God. This Jesus is the King of the universe. This Jesus is the Creator who has come to His people. Well... And the crowd cheers, and rightfully so. In chapter two, verse uh, chapter twenty-one, verse nine, and the crowds that went before him, and those that followed him, were shouting, "Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest!" That was their hymn, and it's our hymn too. Cheers, celebrations expectations we've been talking about that haven't we he came on a donkey a sign of peace but surely surely this king who may come on a sign of peace surely he will overthrow the dictatorship of the roman empire yes jesus was poor Jesus Himself says early in Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Now, Jesus was poor. We understand that. The Scriptures testify. But surely, surely He will meet our expectations so that our standards of living will be improved. Jesus is a healer. Look at all of those He healed. In Matthew alone, there are at least 17 instances where Jesus healed people or brought them back from the dead. Surely, surely this Messiah coming, surely He will bring final 
healing to a broken world. And what we really mean by that is we won't have to experience the brokenness of sickness, illness, plague, or virus anymore. Our expectations of what peace should look like. Our expectations of what economic success should look like. What health and wholeness should look like. Or without confusion, right? Everyone should agree on what this should look like. Shouldn't this king, who has fulfilled every prophecy, recognized by even the blind, shouldn't this man at least meet our expectations? Well, he doesn't. As a matter of fact, what he does do, and if you keep reading from Matthew 21 on, he goes to the temple, the greatest house of worship of the ancient world, and he disrupts business as usual in the house of the Lord. Turns over tables and throws out the money changers. He teaches about the kingdom of God in chapter 21 and 22, and how he is calling the world to a wedding feast, another messianic image that I talked about a little bit earlier about uh, the psalms. Uh, Many of those psalms that are quoted are actually also wedding psalms because in the Jewish understanding, a wedding psalm and the coming of the Messiah uh, were similar motifs that were brought together. Jesus tells the people in chapter 22 that being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that you won't have to pay taxes to Caesar. Which by default means that he has no intentions of messing with such petty things as who is the emperor of a pitiful earthly empire known as the Roman Empire. He tells them of the great commandment, chapter 22, verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's hard. (laughs) Can't we just pray a set number of times a day? That, That would be easier, Jesus. Can't you just give us a list of don't do this and don't do that and do this and do that? That would be better. This love commandment? No, 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 no. Love is hard. Love takes commitment. Love doesn't have an end. I don't know if that's what we were really thinking. You'd tell us, Jesus. In chapter 23, Jesus then goes to the religious leaders. And He warns them and He tells them, look, I need you to love My people and to tell them the truth. The truth about things in verse 20, chapter 23, verse 23. The truth, you go look this up. The truth about things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. He laments over Jerusalem, chapter 23, verse 37. He foretells the destruction of a temple that was made by human hands and explains that he will come again. This time he's coming as a suffering servant, humble. But the next time, chapter 24, he comes as a judge. 
In chapter 25, He comes as the eternal King. You know, the one thing about us human beings is if you don't meet our expectations, we kind of lose it. We don't really take that very well. And as the cheers of the crowd that occurred on Palm Sunday fade into the distance, and we find ourselves now near the very end of Jesus' life, those cheers turn to jeers by those faithful followers. And that's my final point that I want to leave with us today. It is all too human for our cheers to turn to jeers. In chapter 27, verses 15 through 23, the governor, Pilate, is trying to decide what to do with this Jesus. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they all have demanded that Jesus be executed for treason, claiming that Jesus said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate can't find any wrong in him. And so Pilate turns to the crowd. Isn't that what weak leaders always do? They don't stand for what is right. They just seek to please the people. Whether that's the right thing to do or not. And so Pilate says to the crowd, what would you have me do? And the crowd shouts, without pause, without regret, having completely forgotten what happened just a week before, let Him be crucified. So where's the good news in all of this? Well, what we humans mean for evil, God uses for good. You ever heard that phrase? Your grandmother might have said it to you once or twice. The first time that we hear that phrase is from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. It's the story of Joseph after his brothers, because of their jealousy, sold him into slavery and he was uh, sold to Egyptians. And a famine comes upon the land and Joseph finds himself elevated second in control of Egypt. And because of this instance where his brothers did something meant for evil, selling Joseph into slavery, God used for good. Because Joseph not only saved Egypt, but all of Israel from the famine that had descended on the land. And in the same way, God takes the rebellion and the treason of the world the rebellion that nailed Jesus to the cross, and He uses that to redeem us. He bears the weight of our brokenness. Our sin, our treason, is nailed to that cross. 
And three days later, well, that's next Sunday sermon. You'll have to come back for that one. But suffice it to say for today that we human beings are really good at, uh, well, being human. (laughs) Capable of glimpses of wonder and grace and mercy Which isn't surprising. I mean, after all, we're made in the image of God. We bear God's image. But pretty much all of the time, we blow it. But you don't need me to tell you that, do you? You know that. You've seen that. You've experienced that. We live in a world where pollution causes disease. Where anger leads to murder where greed leads to theft where fear leads to persecution where the corruption of the perfect order of creation is perverted there are natural viruses that you and i carry all of the time and did you know they actually help our immune system kill bacteria Uh, discoveries are being made about how viruses may be the key in defeating cancer. There are viruses that help other animals have strong immune systems. But what scientists tell us is, is that when those viruses that are meant for good in those animals come into us, they wreak havoc to our system. And every once in a while, every couple of hundred years or so, A virus or a bacteria wages war on the human race and changes it forever. Like the plague. Like influenza. Like polio. Like the coronavirus. There's also another virus. A virus of sin. A virus of greed. A virus of anger, a virus of fear, and those viruses are all too easily spread from one human to another. And no social distancing can defeat it or mitigate it. It's a virus that was so severe that it distanced us from our Creator, our King. And it infected our cheers and turned them to jeers. And the cost was horrific. Aside from its damage to the human race, the cure demanded the life of an innocent man. God Himself. And ironically, divinely, that was also the cure. And it is found in the one whose death we will remember this week. Not that we would stand righteously condemned, although that is true, but so that we might be healed. Healing is coming. And that 
is good news. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, it is our human inclination to walk in the midst of fear and doubt. But Your Word tells us that because You have come into the world, You have conquered sin and darkness and death itself. Lord, give to us the courage to walk in the confidence that You are with us. That You are defeating not only the plagues and viruses that claim the body, but You have defeated the plague and the virus that would seek to consume our souls. And so, Lord, in the midst of our tears, in the midst of our weeping, may we also shout truly, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the Son of David. For it's in His name, Jesus the Messiah, that we pray. Amen.